Player One on Sin. My name's Eleni and I'm very excited to be joined by the amazing Luke Plunkett. Luke, how are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good and I'm very excited to chat with you. You've had an awesome career, still got a great career, of course, um, but I know our listeners are very keen to, to hear what you've got to say, what wise words you can impart for the listeners at home. But uh, just to get started, for anyone who doesn't know, do you mind telling me a bit about yourself and what you do in the games world? All right, so it's this is actually really short because I haven't really changed jobs. I uh, started working for Kotaku in 2006 when it was a very small, very sort of amateurish operation. And I've stuck around ever since through, you know, growth and transformations and different editors and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, my job really hasn't changed that much. I write news, I interview people in the video game business, I review video games, I give impressions of video games. Um, and that's the short bit of it. I'm sure we'll probably get into more detail in a minute, but yeah, that's the gist of it. Yeah, perfect. Um, and like you said, maybe, you know, your career hasn't changed too much, but it's definitely in that time, I think the gaming industry has definitely changed. Um, it has, yeah. When I say my my position hasn't changed, it kind of hasn't needed to because everything else has changed sort of around me, um, if that makes sense. Like Kotaku's position in the industry has changed and my position within the website has changed and stuff like that. So I haven't sort of needed to necessarily like spread out and go other places any sort of so far at least because yeah things have sort of progressed and changed and transformed to adapt to the way that the medium itself has sort of changed and evolved that yeah it's always kept things sort of really interesting and satisfying to work with yeah absolutely and like you said it's been evolving around you but I guess to bring it back to the beginning I'd love to know what made you even want to get into the games media and games industry? <laughs> well, so I I grew up wanting to make games. Um, I was very sort of heavily into the art side of things. So I, when I finished high school, I actually won an art scholarship to um, sort of attend a, an arts college in Sydney. And my goal at the time was I want to be a concept artist and I want to make video games. Um, some other things came up in my life where I sort of weighed up that decision and I ended up sort of not pursuing that path I still wanted to work in games um, and then it wasn't too much longer that I ended up living with someone who did make games and it was hell <laughs> they uh, even even sort of a very long time ago they they were making sort of blockbuster AAA games for a living and crunch was never ending and it was hell and and this person was my friend and I, I never saw him um, he was never home. He was just working sort of six, seven days a week till very late at night. And that sort of very quickly turned me off the idea of making games. I was like, I don't want a piece of this. Like nothing's worth <laughs> this amount of like stress and work and whatever. But I still loved video games and wanted to be around video games. And so my sort of next avenue of approach to that was, well, if I don't want to make games and be directly involved in them, how about I 
write about them instead. And I, I'd just finished university and I'd just done a graduate diploma in history. And so I'd sort of developed all these skills in researching and then taking that research and turning it into something readable and stuff like that. I was like, well, I'll try my hand at writing, sort of games writing and applied for some jobs and sort of started my own blog as a portfolio piece. And it wasn't too much later that one failed IGN interview later and, and a week later I had a job at Kotaku, um, which at the time, I think there was only five or six of us working there. Um, and we'd be lucky to crack sort of 300,000 views a day. And then obviously in the 15 years since then, um, things have sort of ramped up dramatically in terms of like how the site operates and um, what I've been involved with and stuff. But yeah, so that's that's why I got into what I do. Um, I, there's still sort of echoes in that in, in what I do now. I sort of do a, a privileged kind of indulgence piece a few times a week where I post um, an artist's work on the website. Um, generally, they tend to be people who are either work at a video game studio or, or contract out and do video game work um, just because sort of that's sort of echoes of that sort of sliding doors moment where that's the career that I was going to pursue. And I'm like, well, I've completely changed tack now, but I still love that stuff too. So I like to dabble in it from time to time. Yeah, lovely. Um, and I guess, yeah, like you said, obviously you got into the industry and you sort of stayed with Kotaku um, for your majority of your career. But I'd love to know as like, someone myself who wants to get into sort of games journalism and the gaming industry, what advice would you have for any aspiring gaming and entertainment journalists? Mm, don't do it. <laughs> it's not worth it. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to give that advice now. We used to give that sort of advice freely all the time because it used to be a position where you could sort of reasonably expect someone to have like to make a, a, a go of it as a career. Um, one of the sad realities sort of of the media landscape sort of in general at the moment and not just video games is that the number of jobs and the number of websites is forever seems to be getting smaller and smaller. And so people who are interested in doing this for a living need to sort of work harder and harder to get themselves noticed and sort of potentially get the foot in the door for a sort of part-time or full-time position writing about games. Um, my advice through that, now that I've said that, my advice through that whole time has sort of always been the same. Um, I can only give advice as to what works for me. Um, and what worked for me was sort of setting up my own almost private website. And in my own time, I would review games. I would do short news pieces on games. I would basically do every piece of writing that a website would reasonably be expecting or hoping me to do for a living. And so I was not only sort of honing my skills in those different areas, but I was also presenting basically a portfolio of sort of this is the stuff I can do because every website is looking for people with different skills and, and different beats to cover. But um, sort of the more things you can show that you're into, like personally speaking, you know, I don't work for Polygon or Eurogamer or IGN. I only work for Kotaku, but I know that everybody that works for Kotaku has to be able to cover so many bases. Like we don't have reviewers. We have people who are writing news posts and then an hour later they're doing an interview. And then, you know, that afternoon they're, they're working on a review that they're doing. And so, yeah, the more that you're able to show that you can have a lot of those skills and be able to sort of turn around and write nice copy with them, um yeah once you've done that i guess trying to get freelance pieces um a lot of major sites do still take pictures for freelance pieces that's a good way to get your byline on the website and sort of be able to say yes you know i have appeared on you know kotaku eurogamer 
um, rock, paper, shotgun, whatever, um, as a sort of portfolio thing. Like, in, and then, yeah, I know I've dealt with editors. I've had my name appear on a website where people have been able to then come at me on Twitter or, you know, send me, send me emails and, and feedback and stuff. So yeah. Um, my advice hasn't changed. Um, but yeah, just the more, the more you can show that the more ways you can show the better you can write, the better it is, I think. Perfect. Lovely advice. Um, and sort of on that note, you mentioned, you know, needing to be able to write news pieces, do interviews, review games. Is there a particular aspect of your job that you enjoy the most? And then is there one that kind of has you sighing going, oh, here we go. Um, I really like reviewing a game that I liked. <laughs> I understandable. Find, um, that's just like a personable, pleasurable, like it's nice to be paid to review and then write about a game that was that you would have played for fun anyway. Um, on a more sort of strictly professional basis. Again, this is sort of maybe potentially unique to my job because of where I work, but um, there's aspects of reporting like like aggregation which sounds like and for a lot of websites is a very sort of simple like oh this other website had a story so i'm just going to sort of copy that story and, and write it and for a lot of websites that's what it is one of the the real pleasures of working at kotaku is that when we're basically allowed to speak on topics rather than just reporting them so what for one website might be a short 200 word aggregation piece I can turn into an 800 word opinion piece sort of on the fly because we're able to, you know, very quickly sort of say, oh, okay, this piece of news is newsworthy, but here's why. And I don't agree with it because of this, this, and this. And so that, you know, something that seems like a really mundane reporting task, potentially for other journalists working for other websites, I actually really enjoy that part of the job because it's always something that every day that you wake up, it's a potentially fresh challenge and it's something sort of new coming over the horizon that you haven't anticipated or weren't expecting today um yeah lovely um and on that note of reviewing games have you got like one or a top three games that you've reviewed that you just loved in terms of how much how good the game was or what how good i think my review was <laughs> Well, I mean, let's go with how much you enjoyed the game because I feel like the other one definitely. Oh, it's really, it's like, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but I've been doing this for 15 years. So it's really hard to put a finger on that, especially because like of my personal favorites. Oh, I guess I did. My, so my favorite game of all time is Wind Waker. Um, oh. And I just was about to say, I, but I didn't review that, but I technically did. I think I reviewed the... HD re-release on the Wii U. So I'll say that. It's a technicality, oh, but I think it still counts. Lovely. Well, at Player One, all of us are huge Zelda fans, so we're all going to love to hear that, and our listeners will. I mean, I've even got a Triforce tattoo behind my ear to profess my love for the series. So that is an <laughs> awesome answer. I very much so appreciate that. Um, I guess to sort of shift and maybe look more at the, the local gaming scene, like you said, you've been working in games for over 15 years and I'd really love to get your thoughts about what you think the Australian gaming scene looks like now obviously in recent years we've sort of got more Australian devs coming through now more government support coming through uh what do you sort of think the trajectory of the Australian gaming industry is going to look like in the years to come um in terms of industry I think I think that that sort of path's already been set I think the days of Australia having these sort of being home to 
these sort of outposts of AAA development where we used to have, you know, everything from, you know, 2K Studio here in Canberra to uh, the pandemic guys in, in, in Brisbane and, and other sort of studios. I think that's long gone. I think the sort of setup we've got now where we tend to have these small to mid-size, highly successful independent studios that may or may not end up getting swallowed up by larger publishers. Um, I think that sort of space where you can look at games everywhere from Armello to Unpacking for a more recent example, um, games that can sort of have a real big international appeal and then leverage that into being able to set up a successful local studio that may not be on the scale of the old AAA ones, but it's still like a really cool place to incubate local talent um, and, and be able to sort of provide opportunities for Australians who whether through their own impulses or learnings or whether they've been to one of the several schools like AIE where they're able to learn that stuff um, with hopes of making a career out of it. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think the, the trajectory we've been on, I can only see this increased government funding or technically tax cuts, I guess it's the same thing at the end of the day, um, only sort of making that easier and sort of more, yeah, more tempting for studios to be able to do. And that when there are studios that can make a hit, um, then they're, yeah, they're able to leverage that into a more sort of stable career, I guess, or lifespan by being able to staff up and then make a, a, a next game and a next game. Lovely. Um, and talking about games, I actually want to highlight one game in particular, which is your own, uh, The Great Air Race. <laughs> um, now, I'm very intrigued because I did see you tweeted and described the game as Porco Rosso, which is one of my favourite pseudo Ghibli films ever, meets Mario Kart. So I'd love for you to sort of talk about what compelled you to make the game and sort of discuss for anyone wanting um, so, to check it out. So like a, a side hustle of my job at Kotaku is that I sort of became by virtue of just playing a lot of board games I sort of became a board game guy for the website professionally and so I just started reviewing more and more and more board games and as I did that I started developing like a whole different set of like basically a new lexicon in terms of how I can write about and review things which has been a nice little challenge because it is very different playing and reviewing a board game to a video game but so as I was doing that more and more and as I thought back to like, well, I did, you know, want to originally make games. I was like, well, I should make a board game. And then one of my best friends who I play board games with, he's like, man, I really want to make a board game. And so we just sort of looked at, looked at each other one day and went, let's make a board game. And so we did. Like, it was really fun um, making it. But it was also um, like a really great way to sort of flex some design impulses. Um, and then by doing that, uh sort of I guess a side of a side effect of that has been to also gain a, a great understanding of some of the processes involved in making games that I wouldn't have been aware of as someone who just writes about games um, I'm not I'm not going to say that the video game industry and the board game industry or the designer or manufacturing process of both those things are the same because they're not one of the reasons I wanted to make a board game was that it's 10 times easier to make a board game. I can write things on paper and a week later I can have them on cardboard and I can be testing them. I don't have to code anything. I don't have to draw anything. Like it's, it's, it was so much easier to get my design ideas into something functional in the board game space rather than video games. So that was appealing as well. Um, and then, like I said, just being able to go through the process of designing a game, prototyping a game, like, testing a game, trying to get a game signed and, and published 
um, going through that process sort of really helped me not sympathize, but because I can't afford to be sympathetic <laughs> in this line of work. You see too many games, but I guess more, just more understanding of the level of work and, and love that goes into creating a game, um, even if it's not something that ends up being successful or appealing to me personally as a critic, you can still appreciate, well, months or years of this person's life has gone into this. So it's sort of useful to have that perspective critically as well. Lovely. Um, and on the topic of board games, have you got any favorites, any board game that if you just want to relax and unwind, you know, you know which game you've got in mind? It's hard because I play board games on two very different planes of existence. I kind of play games with my family to sort of chill out. And then I play games with my board games crew, which is the opposite of that. Um, I keep coming back to Takedo. Takedo is a really simple game. It's a few years old now, but it's just a game about walking across Japan, trying to have a nice holiday. And everywhere you go, you have to stop and do something productive with your day. And then every few days you stop and have a nice meal at a restaurant. And every turn, there's, you can't do anything wrong. You're always doing something. Um, and, and at the end of it, somebody has to have won, but they, it's just this very cruisy, like trip along the way and everybody that you play with has fun and nobody fights and, and everybody's hanging out having a good time at the end of it someone's won but people don't normally tend to care that much because everyone's just like the whole point of the game is that you enjoy the journey not the destination and so that's how the whole experience tends to play out so yeah probably say Takedo. I love that I love that you picked a game that's sort of more of a bonding experience because often when I play board games it's usually someone ends up flipping a table and it's very competitive so I love that you picked a a nice and positive game. Yeah, well, the ones you put tables over, you don't come back to as often, I've found. So it's the it's the relaxing ones that tend to have the staying power sometimes. So because you, you either trash games or trash friendships with some of the other ones, whereas ones like Takeda, you can count on them. You can always come back to them. That's true. Yeah, the flipping tables games are the ones you take like six month break from. Exactly. Come back, yes. Everyone needs to just take a break. Exactly. You you do the whole like, why haven't we played this in a while? And then you play it again, and then because you because they made us hate each other. That's why. Yeah exactly exactly um and i guess another realm of pop culture that i really want to discuss with you is um cosplay because i know that you have co-written a book um i have yes yes um yeah tell us a bit about that what what do you love about cosplay what made you want to i'm not a cosplayer anyone that knows me or knows my coverage like that i've had to deal with with my coverage of it would know that i'm not a cosplayer um i started covering it for the website purely for I don't know what you call it commercial purposes like to maybe 10 years ago we started noticing hey these cosplay galleries are getting lots of page views because people like looking at people wearing cool costumes and so i started just sort of looking into cosplay more just from a purely almost sort of mercenary standpoint as a games writer like yeah i'll do the cosplay gallery that's fine or i'm at tokyo game show i'll go and take the photos of the cosplayers or whatever and then it just evolved out from there the more i covered it the more i interacted with cosplayers and interviewed them and spoke with you know not just cosplayers but photographers and makeup artists and props builders and you know people that sort of run a whole spectrum of those involved in the cosplay scene um the more i sort of doubled that the more i sort of became incredibly interested in sort of the scene itself um i'm someone who really likes to cover 
I know it's a toxic word these days, but it's still like fandom has always really appealed to me as a writer. So I've always looked at things like mods at fan art um, and cosplay was another example of that where it's like, hey, this is a space where people are expressing their love of video games and you know other stuff, obviously, but um, in a real world sort of creative, unique way that's outside strictly talking or playing video games. And so that's sort of, that's what really got me on the hook was like, oh, this is really interesting seeing how people can take a character or a universe or a world that they love. And like, yes, the stereotypical thing is that they just recreate that. But then there are so many other avenues where cosplayers can flip things or they can, you know, ship things or they can do all kinds of things with cosplay that you wouldn't think of. And each time they do something like that, it just becomes more and more like interesting as a subculture and as an almost sort of artistic pursuit on its own. Like one of my favorite cosplay features we ever did was a, a feature a few years ago where um, these prominent cosplayers did a Sailor Moon shoot, but they wore streetwear outfits that they had done like a sort of like a Supreme Sailor Moon crossover kind of thing they had going on. And they shot it like a feature on a streetwear website. And like, to me, that was just like, so cool. It was just such a, a unique way of sort of taking the, these, all these different parts of cosplay, which was the, the fandom, the fashion, the craft, um, the way it's presented and the photography and the graphic design. And they sort of took all of that and put this really cool, unique twist on something where, you know, you would not have expected that to have happened. And so, yeah, that's what I sort of, that's what I get out of cosplay. Um, and then the stuff, I don't write as much about it anymore, to be honest. Um, there hasn't been much going on while a global pandemic's been on. You know, it's that, that little people thing. People yeah. from, being, from being able to go to shows and because they haven't been going to shows, they haven't been sort of making as many outfits or sort of pushing the limits and stuff. But yeah, it's hopefully something I can get back into um, as sort of people start you know, I don't want to say that the term return to normal because who knows if we'll ever be able to do that, but some sense of normalcy where people are going to more cons and, and coming up with these cool ideas and shoots and stuff. And then, yeah, the book just came out of that. Like, it was like, all right, me and me and Brian, because Brian did a lot of cosplay coverage as well. He's based in Japan. So obviously he's like, he, he's done a lot of sort of Japanese cultural stuff in other books and his own reporting for Kotaku that we just kind of put our heads together and we're like, yeah, we just let's write a book. It was about 18 months. Um, the publishers wanted a coffee table book of photos. They ended up getting what I still think is the, the best sort of historical book on cosplay um, you can buy. Uh, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think you can even buy it anymore. I think it came out six or seven years ago, but it's called Cosplay World. If you ever want to look it up, I think it's a good book. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the sort of the history and, and some of that sort of stuff behind cosplay instead of just looking at pictures. Um, that's sort of what we were hoping to get across with that book. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, you sort of just then you sort of mentioned the history of cosplay and I'd sort of love to get your thoughts because I guess in recent years, maybe in the past decade, even more recently, minus, you know, the, the pandemic sort of slowing things down, there's definitely been a shift, I think, with maybe just pop culture or cosplay in particular. And it's sort of becoming a lot more mainstream, I think, you know, maybe back in the day when it wasn't as widely accepted or known, nowadays you're seeing it pop up, more people know what cosplaying is. Um, I'd sort of love to get your thoughts on, like, why do you think that's the case? What shifts do you think 
we've seen in society to make it sort of a more well-known it's probably guess, just that general like, like, like it's been one aspect of a sort of more general takeover of popular culture by sort of nerdier stuff you know as as you've seen comic book movies and video games and you know all these other things that would have once been even Dungeons and Dragons is becoming you know far more mainstream as all these sort of things that sort of 15 20 30 years ago would have been seen as something for you know social outcasts recluses something that a stereotypical movie might have had people bullied for you know it's as that stuff has has pushed more and more into the mainstream um i'm going to assume through the power of the internet uh cosplay is to sort of come along for the ride but then also being part of it um yeah cosplay has gone from being something that like i remember when i started the website cosplayers it was incredibly nerdy like who are these like like we would post the cosplay gallery in like 2007 and people would say who are these freaks like dressing up as characters like who would do it's not even halloween who would do that and then now, like I saw last week, um, some of the Halloween costumes people do now sort of globally, but especially celebrities, it's got very little to do with Halloween. It's now just an excuse for cosplay, you know, and, and same for birthday parties, same for movie premieres, you know, just it's, it's become so much more, not just, not just the people that have always been practicing it have, have sort of found that it's become more widely accepted, but it's obviously encouraged millions more people to sort of take up the craft themselves like when i first started covering cosplay i had a, a, a weekly feature series where i would interview and feature like the best cosplayers and i had a small list i could go through because you knew them all and these people all ended up in our book because it's like we had contacts with them and we'd spoken with them before and it was easy to say these three people are the best photographers these three women, these two guys and this props maker are the best in the world. It's easy to say that. And like now it's, you don't, you can't even say that. You have no idea. There's so many millions of people around the world across all continents, just like blowing people out of the water with cosplay that like you can't, you, you can't keep tabs on it anymore. It used to be a, a culture that was small enough. You could study it and sort of say, these are the, the leaders. Whereas now it's like, you can't follow it. There's so many people coming up every day, like kids, adults, just inspired by other cosplayers or just like wanting to get into something like that themselves. And just, yeah, it's just really cool seeing how much it's blown up. I'd say in the last five or six years, it seems to have really sort of gone to that stage where we sort of tracked it for five years where it was coming from, okay, this nerdy little hobby is now becoming like, more widely known and in the five years since that it's like out of control yeah so very no, cool. definitely um and i guess another thing you sort of mentioned obviously with the pandemic you know the bigger cons and cons even locally in australia kind of are still finding their feet in terms of getting sorted um but i guess looking at cosplay what kind of role do you think those conventions play in creating a safe space for people to then go in their costumes, show off, smile, everyone embraces each other. How important do you think that sort of community um, aspect is? Locally or globally? Globally, locally, whatever. Yeah, locally there's like been some issues on. with people feeling safe at some major conventions uh, lately, which, you know, has nothing to do with cosplay, but it just goes to show how, complex, how like, complicated these conventions can operate on a sort of social and political standpoint because um, we've seen sort of mask regulations come up 
lately at the return of some of the big cons um, in the US as well. But yeah, look, cons, the, the big conventions are like, it's hard to describe them to people. It's, it's almost like the race day for a race car driver's season is like you can sort of identify, okay, this con, me and a hundred of my best friends are going to be there. We've got this idea. We're all going to do an Overwatch themed sort of get together. We're all going to get there. Every single person is going to be in this hotel for the next four days are all going to be cosplayers. You know, we're not going to have to worry about anybody questioning what we're doing or making fun of it or not understanding it. Um, we're going to be surrounded by people who share our passion for this. And so, yeah, those cons are like obviously an absolute highlight for people where they get to build up to it by working on outfits, but then also blow off a bunch of steam by partying for two, three, four nights with a bunch of their best friends who, because of the nature of cosplay, they may only see them at major shows because they live across, you know, the US and, and Europe and places like that. So yeah, huge events, yeah. very important to, like I said, that's one of the main reasons we haven't run much cosplay lately because people haven't had those shows to look forward to. And without that, they haven't been, you know, I don't want to say no one's been doing anything. Obviously people have been still doing amazing cosplay work, but yeah, it sort of does take a bit of the steam out of the scene when one of its sort of premier ways of getting together and hanging out and showing off is sort of taken off the table for 18 months to two years. Of course. And I know you said you're not one to cosplay yourself, but if you were to cosplay, what would be your like dream outfit? What character would you want to go as? I would, I've, yeah, my wife asked me this recently, actually, for Halloween. I've, I would probably go and, yeah, probably Aima from Lord of the Rings in his like most exquisite like red armor with the big Carl Urban blonde hair and the, the funny helmet. Um, just something about that. All the Lord of the Rings stuff I, I love, like visually, you know, the, the stuff that I'm, I'm into for costumes, but just something about that dude's outfit in that movie. Um, yeah, probably that. I love that. That was a very unexpected answer, but a fantastic answer. <laughs> Love that. Um, well, I guess, okay, Lord of the Rings, which is your favourite favorite film in the series? Okay, okay, so it depends if I'm allowed to. So me and my wife watch the trilogy every December. Amazing. Um, because we do that, we fast forward. We watch all the Fellowship. And then once we get past the Fellowship, we fast forward through every Sam Frodo and Gollum part. And it makes the movie so much better to just like, they flow so much better and they're so much more interesting. I know I know there are going to be a lot of the rings people that are going to hear this and like want to murder me, but like, I'm sorry. We watch them every year. It's been like 20 years. Something I had to give. If I'm allowed to do that, probably Return of the King. If, if I'm not allowed to do that, it's probably Two Towers. Just because it's Return of the King is, yeah, yeah. I'll stick with that. That's my answer. If I'm allowed to skip Frodo and Sam, it's Return of the King. If I'm not, it's Two Towers. I love that. It's like your version of a director's cut. You're like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I have, look, this is going to sound like super nerdy, but I have sat down a couple of years ago and talked to one of my friends who works in advertising. And I was going to make or try and make 
uh, a hobbitless, well, almost hobbitless cut of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where the Fellowship stays the same, but then the rest of it's told only through uh, Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas's perspective, and then that whole side plot where they don't know if Frodo or Sam are alive or not. Sorry, when I say hobbitless, I only mean Frodo and Sam. Pippin and Merry can stay. Is that whole subplot where they don't know whether they're alive or not becomes so much more tense. But then you also skip some of the like most cringe-worthy scenes in the trilogy as well. So everybody wins. But then we wake up. There's a couple of scenes, like major scenes, that don't make sense if you don't have Sam and Frodo in it. So like sadly, that put that um, I don't know what you call it endeavor <laughs> to to rest. No, I love that. Everyone's st- listeners, stay tuned for the Luke Plunkett director's cut of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That sounds like something you absolutely yeah. have Look, to do. If I ever make Peter Jackson, I'll see what I can, I'll see if he can have his, has any tips for it. But yeah, as of now, it's on hiatus, sadly. Oh, that's okay. Well, maybe you'll come back to it. But getting back to um, video games, I would love to hear what sort of games are you into at the moment? Any recommendations for our listeners on what they should be checking out? Yeah, look, to, to give a local shout out, I, I reviewed Unpacking this week. Um, absolutely loved it. I'm not normally, I'm, I'm going to be slightly critical here and say there are some Australian games writers who can be overly enthusiastic about Australian games because there's a tendency to cheerlead local product um, for, you know, I don't know why, but there sort of tends to be. Unpacking, however, totally deserves so much of the success and praise that it's getting i've had a ball with it i've introduced it to my wife who doesn't normally play that many games um i played it and i love the storytelling element to it um she is very keen to get into the marie kondo aspects of it of rotating and making sure every pair of underpants is in the exact right spot in the drawers and <laughs> that sort of stuff um yeah so unpacking for a, a sort of short quick fun recommendation after that, I don't know. It's been a it's 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 been a kind of I'm going to sound like really elitist and snobby here, but it's been a, a kind of forgettable year in some terms, depending on what you're into. But for me, anyway, and not many of the games that I tend to get into have come out this year, and obviously that's a result of, and we're probably going to see it next year as well because last year games that were in development when the pandemic started, you know games like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, sort of big games that were affected by it, could sort of limp over the finish line. Sort of this year and next year, we're going to find out there's a lot of games that have been held up for like a lot longer than six months. They might've been held up for a year, two years because of the pandemic. And so that's, it feels like not much has come out this holiday season. Um, Sorry, you can tell I work for an American website because it's a holiday season. (laughs) This this time of year, I'll say. Um, I'm enjoying Forza though at the moment. Uh, Forza Horizon 5. Um, I really love driving games that focus on the fun of driving and not the simulation aspects. I realize that those games have their place and that's fine. I think the best thing a driving game can do is just make the experience of driving a fast car as fun and as exciting as possible by like making it feel slippery and fast and making the engine loud and making the effects that simulate the speed as it wishes past the window and stuff. And Forza Horizon 5 has that in bucket loads and so yeah I've been playing the crap out of that for the last week or so so yeah those two I guess Forza and Unpacking for the two opposite ends of the creative and gameplay um, spectrum 
I was gonna say you've got such a contrast there. Like one, you're like speed demon in the oh, racing, my, and the other one just. I, so I play up. most nearly all my games on PC, and my Steam recently playlist is an absolute like whiplash-inducing nightmare. It goes from family platformer to like grand strategy game to driving game to FIFA to fighting game like you, you have because of you have to play so many games like in the one place for this job it's it's one of the weirdest things you have to get used to doing this job full time is like hey look can you check out fifa and then when you finish with fifa can you play forza and then can you play this game where you unpack a woman's belongings out of cardboard boxes and then can you go back and play madden and like it's like different games different genres different experiences every you know sometimes day to day sometimes in the same day so yeah it's odd but you get used to it well yeah and i guess you mentioned the sort of fast pace of yeah playing a game from one genre then moving on to another i guess i'm interested because of that sort of fast pace and the turnaround do you ever really get the chance to sit down and enjoy a game you're reviewing or needing to preview or is it kind of like very like that depends that really depends on the nature of the review so if there's a game that we so there are some major publishers that have Kotaku. This isn't news to anybody, but there are major publishers that have Kotaku blacklisted. And so they just literally will not communicate with us. And so part of that is we don't get code from them. So if there's a game that we've purchased on our own and are reviewing, we can take our time with it. Because once you miss that first sort of day of reviews, it doesn't matter. Um, there are some games where... So the Yakuza games... And by extension, the same people who handle that tend to handle the, the persona and related sort of games. Those guys are really good and they'll tend to get you the code sort of four weeks before the embargo's up. And that gives you a lot of time to take your time with it. Um, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you only get three or four days. And so, yeah, you have to sort of smash that. Um, and so if people want to have longer conversations about how productive that is to your experience of a game versus someone that's able to play it half an hour at a time, that is a very constructive conversation you can be having about whether it's worthwhile to do that. Um, I found a really happy medium the other day where, um, so I'm, I've sort of tended to be the long-term I've sort of done the most Yakuza reviews for the site. Um, and they tend to be pretty good getting you that code early, but my last two reviews have been weeks late. Um, so the time, so for like a dragon, uh, my save game broke when they, did a patch and it was so bad that I had to send my save game uh, to the studio in Japan and they had to manually, like, I joked that it's like the dude in, two, in Toy Story 2 that stitches Woody's arm back on. Like that's what they had to do to my save game so that I could finish that review. But that took weeks. And so that took all the pressure off me. And then when Lost Judgment came out, which was the Yakuza spinoff that came out last month, um, my PS4 had died and I didn't have a PS5. So I couldn't review that either. Um, and then I managed to get a, like, literally I managed to get a PS5 the next week, but then I got code because I'd missed the embargo day for that. I was able to, again, take my time with it. And so my review for Lost Judgment ran like a month after everybody else's. Um, and it still did fantastic traffic because it was like, Hey, here's Kotaku's review. But it was also notable as, oh, Kotaku reviewed Lost Judgment like a month late. Um, cause stuff happened and but it also gave the guy a chance to like it took me two and a half weeks to just plod my way through it like an hour a day half an hour a day um which is like what most people will play it well not most but like a lot of people will that will be their normal experience with that game um 
And so that's how I would like to do it going forwards is be able to take my time. Um, how much time I have to take tends to be up to the publisher, whether they're communicating with us or not, and then how early they're able to send us um, early code or not. And of course, if your technology decides to work, it sounds like it's been a bit of a litany of disaster. It's been working against you. Your PS4 just broke. Oh, no, it had died. It had died like a, a few months earlier. But like, I didn't, I wasn't fussed because everything comes out on PC now. <laughs> like, like, like so much stuff. Like, I don't have an Xbox. I haven't had an Xbox for years. Like a real cornerstone of this job used to be you had to own every platform. So there's one, there was one point where I had a PS3, an Xbox, a Wii U, a, a 3DS, a Vita, like, you know, you had to have everything. Whereas I can do 90, 95% of my job now with a PC. Um, especially now that Microsoft has started releasing, like I'm playing Forza the same time as everybody else is and I'm playing on PC and I don't have an Xbox. So um, yeah, I wasn't fussed about the PS4 dying. Not having the PS5 was the bigger problem. And then, yeah, it was just like the planets aligned and I just managed to sort of tee up a PS5 sort of within the ballpark where I could get lost judgment. And so, yeah. Yeah. If you're um, a reader and you see late reviews, try them out. They're good. Trust me. <laughs> You've had lots of time to sort of chill out and play at your own, at your own pace. Exactly. They're, they're very in-depth reviews. You've really taken the time. Um, and so we've sort of touched on games you've been playing recently. What about what are some games you're looking forward to at the end of this year, coming up next year? What do you reckon are the, the big picks for you? Probably Total War, Total War Warhammer 3. Um, I am a enormous strategy game tragic, so I will play anything that's turn-based. <laughs> um i'll play any total war game um, i'm a long time suffering fan of that series through good and bad um those warhammer, warhammer games have been absolutely incredible um i've gone from someone who like as a as a history nerd and a total war fan i've gone from someone who was just completely aghast that creative assembly we're going to make these fantasy-based total war games um and i've just become their biggest fan because they've done such an amazing job with them um Company of Heroes 3, Company of Heroes 1 is one of my probably top five. Like I've written a, a story for the site calling it literally the perfect real-time strategy game. So I'm keen to try that out when it's out. Um, that'll do, those two. <laughs> I don't even yeah. know when they're out. I think, I think Warhammer's out early next year. I'm not sure when Company of Heroes 3 is out, but yeah those two they're not out yet so i guess that satisfies the most basic requirement of your question so yeah that is essentially the question yeah, I that did, was it i yep. did just ask yep. you yep. those two you smashed it um and i guess sort of just lastly before we wrap up um what's sort of the plan in terms of your next couple of years are you just going to keep writing for kotaku smashing it out any upcoming sort of changes you've got that you want the listeners to know about no, I mean, I've, I've, I've been here 15 years this month. Um, that suggests that I enjoy what I'm doing <laughs> and find it consistently challenging and rewarding enough to have stuck around and keep doing it through thick and thin. So, yeah, if I get the opportunity and the privilege to be able to keep doing that. I, I, I joked that, like, I started this job when I was 26. So I've just given away how old I am there. But, 
and I started part-time. I did part-time for five or six months. And so I was doing the Kotaku work cheekily from my desk job that I had at the time in Sydney. Um, and I used to just say all the time, like, um, when I got offered the job full-time, I was like, this is going to be a great six months until I get fired or this company goes bankrupt because there's no way you can make a living like having this much fun. Um, and then here I am sort of 15 years later and like, while well, yes, technically our owners did go bankrupt <laughs> once, um, like I'm still here. So yeah, it's the counting my blessings every six months since that I've still been able to keep doing it. So if, if in two years I'm still having as much fun as I am today, then I'm a very lucky man. Lovely. Um, and before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners? Any sort of final words? Just have fun with video games, guys. Part of a sad part of my job is is dealing with a lot of people who take video games too seriously, or get too angry about video games, or feel the need to get angry at people who make or are around video games. Video games are like the best thing on the planet. <laughs> They're just like the most interesting socially connective spiritually rewarding sort of pastimes that you can you can dabble in just remember to have fun with them absolutely um and for anyone listening in who wants to check out your work where can they find you obviously on the kataku website but any sort of socials you want to let people know about um you can find me i'm on twitter my full name luke plunkett at twitter that's good enough you find me there there's links to everywhere else from there if you follow me on Twitter for more than a week and you stick around, there's something wrong with you. But <laughs> that's 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 where you find everything else. Apart from that, yep, us.kataku.com is the best way for people in Australia to access the American website, which is the one I work for. Um, but my stuff will appear on the Australian um, Kotaku as well. So either one of those, whichever one you prefer, all good. Lovely. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Player One, Luke. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm sure everyone appreciated everything you have to say. And thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been great. Awesome. Thanks.